Okay, we're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 34, which is page 201 in your church Bibles. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers bought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. 
As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. In 1982, Paul McCartney and, and Stevie Wonder sung a song, Ebony and Ivory, I don't know if you remember it. One of the lines goes like this, We all know that people are the same wherever you go. There is good and bad in everyone. So it was a slightly, you know, saccharine, slightly sickly sweet kind of song, but no one's going to argue with this line. We all know that people are the same wherever you go. There's good and bad in everyone. There's good in everyone, there's bad in everyone. But what seems less clear is whether people are drawn to the good or drawn mostly to the bad. Some people would say we're all basically good, whereas other people would say, no, we're we're all basically bad. One view seems overly naive and the other seems overly cynical. But I reckon whoever we are and whatever we think about people in general... Chances are we think of ourselves as being basically good. So even if we think in theory that all people are basically bad, in our hearts, most of us feel like we're the exception. Don't you feel that your intentions are basically good? Your actions are understandable in the circumstances? Your way of living, especially when you compare it to others, is is not too bad, really. Most of us feel about ourselves that we're we're basically good people trying to do the right thing despite the difficult situations and the difficult people that we find around us. God's got a very different assessment of the human heart. Have a look at Genesis 6 verse 5 where we read just how bad he says we can get. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Look at the assessment that Jesus gave of the human heart in in Mark 7, verse 20. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, Envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 12, There is no one who does good, not even one. God is neither naive nor cynical, but he says that even the good that we do is touched by bad. 
So how is it that we can believe that we're the exception? How is it that we can feel like we're basically good, even if we know in our heads that we're not? How can we have such a a different assessment of ourselves to God's assessment? And there's lots of ways that we could answer that. But a huge part of the answer is that sin is deceitful. Sin deceives us. Sin hides the truth from us. And it's not like we're some innocent victim of sin. Sin is us willingly choosing to be deceived. Now, the truth is that none of us are as evil as we could be, but all of us are more evil than we can see. Today, in 1 Samuel, we see an example of the deceitfulness of sin. We see the way that it blinds Saul. It blinds his eyes to see the seriousness of what he's done. And we see some of the tragic implications of sin. And we also see that God's people desperately need, above all else, a king who will lead them in obeying the Lord. Now, remember a couple of weeks back in chapter 8, the people wanted a king who would do for them what they want. Now, that was always going to be a recipe for disaster. And so last week in chapter 12, it took some pretty extraordinary events with the the thunderstorm, but God opened their eyes to see just how sinful they'd been. They'd rejected him by choosing human power over his power. And last week we saw that that God pulled them back from the brink of destruction. He tells them that they need to be a people who obey him if they're going to have a future, and they need a king who will lead them to obey him. But sadly, what comes next in 1 Samuel is two stories that show us the overall character of Saul's reign, two representative stories. And both stories show us that Saul fails to lead the people in obeying God. We're just going to focus in on the second story today in chapter 15, which we just had read. And it begins in verse 1 with Samuel reminding Saul of what kind of king God has called him to be. Samuel says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. So in other words, Saul's a king who's supposed to be completely unlike the nations around him. His job is to rule not his own people, someone else's people, God's people. And his job is to do that not by listening to what he wants, or what the people want, but by carefully listening to what God wants. And this is our first point. The role of the king was to listen to the voice of God. So listen now to what God wants him to do in verse 2. The Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, no matter how you look at at this, this is a disturbing, awful message from God. There's no way to sit at ease with this. It's horrible. And that's not to say that it can't be understood. Some atheists, they love to grab sound bites like this and, and paint God as a, a vindictive tyrant. 
but they're not at all interested in listening to God or trying to understand the, me- the meaning of such an awful passage. Their goal is to not listen. Their aim is, is to try to justify to themselves and to others why ignoring God is a good idea. And so, of course, they're never going to be able to understand something like this. They don't want to. But for those of us who know God, we wrestle with this very differently. We wonder why our loving God could command such a thing. And there are reasons. But even still, it's disturbing. It's not something that could or should ever sit lightly on us. So let me give you a couple of things that can help us understand this, even though I'm not going to be able to adequately answer all the questions that we have. The first thing to say is that this is a nation that's been hostile to God's people from day one. When Israel had just come out of Egypt, fleeing the Egyptians, weak and thirsty, when they were trying to pass peacefully by these people, they were the very first people to attack them. And they attacked them by killing off the stragglers at the end of the main group. These people, the Amalekites, they're descendants of Esau, who was Israel's brother. But despite their shared history with Israel, they've chosen to aggressively pit themselves against God's plan for Israel. And since that first conflict, right down through the generations, they've kept on pitting themselves against Israel, unprovoked. Israel didn't start the conflict and this was a conflict that was never going to be solved by negotiation because the Amalekites just weren't happy for Israel to exist at all as God's people. And God, as a holy, pure, righteous God, he decides that it's time for these people to face his judgment. But even still, we wonder how God can order the killing of women and children. They might deserve it. We know everyone deserves it. Everyone is sinful. But why isn't he merciful? And here we need to realize that God is very different to us. God sees all. God knows all. God sees that their opposition against Israel is going to continue generation after generation. But remember, he's promised to bless the whole world through Israel, his people. He's not going to let that plan be jeopardized. But if he doesn't judge these people, that's exactly what will happen. Imagine if you met someone like Hitler before he'd done the evils of World War II, before he'd caused the death of so many people, so many innocent people. In the end, I think something like 80 million people died in World War II or up. Now imagine if you somehow knew what was going to happen and if you knew that Hitler was well and truly already on the, on the path to that outcome, if you had the opportunity to take him out, should you do it? I think that most people could see that if it was possible to have that kind of knowledge, then the right thing to do would be to take him out. God is a God who is unlike people. He has that kind of knowledge and so much more. God knows that the generations of the Amalekites would continue to be against his people and that if they aren't dealt with, his plan to bless the whole world through his people would be in danger. And so God judges their rejection of him for the sake of the whole world. But make no mistake, God doesn't delight in judging like this. 
In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God's judgment, it's his unnatural work. It's necessary, but, but it's not at all what he likes to do. And God's judgment, it's not something that we can simply put in the past and ignore. You know, it's not like God's like this in the Old Testament, but he, he softens up in the New Testament. God stays the same. The difference is that God no longer uses his people to bring about his judgment. Jesus alone now is the one who brings about God's judgment. And Jesus alone is the one who brings about God's salvation from that judgment. But still, through Jesus, God will judge those who reject him. Now, there's more that we could say about this, and there's a question and answer time at at the end. But even with that, even if we talked for hours and hours, in the end, whatever way you look at it, it's still confronting. And it should be. God is holy and just, and he judges evil. And this is something that we should never take lightly. So how would you feel if you were Saul? How would you feel if God were asking you to be the instrument of his judgment? What a dreadful, terrifying thing to have to be a part of. So let's have a look at how Saul goes with this. Look at verse 9. We read that Saul attacks them, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Could you imagine doing this? God is judging these people. It's a fearful and dreadful thing. And Saul is leading his people in profiting from it. Think about that. It's like trying to make a profit from people going to hell. It's unbelievable. They're not to profit from this. They're not to profit from it because it makes a mockery of everything that God's doing. This is God's judgment on wickedness. It's not something to delight in. And God is unbelievably saddened by what Saul has done. In verse 11, we read that God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. The living God the all-powerful king of the universe, is not unaffected by our actions. He feels regret. God looks at what Saul has done and he saddens because he sees this as Saul turning away from him. But what about Saul? How does Saul see what he's done? Well, we get the first idea of how Saul sees it when Samuel goes looking for him to confront him. In verse 12, Saul is not where Samuel expects Instead, he hears that he's gone to Carmel. And what's, his, what's he doing? There he has set up a monument in his own honour. Saul thinks that this dreadful act of God's judgment has brought him honour. Think about how perverse that is. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but Saul does. Saul, rather than bringing this judgment and, and fear in fear and trembling as a sign to the word of God's righteousness, instead... He proudly presents this victory to the world as a sign of his own honour and glory. G. 
you know that when the Amalekites first attacked Israel and God gave them the victory, back then Moses had a, a monument set up, but he set it up in God's honour. In Exodus 17, the monument was called, The Lord is my banner. But Saul, he sets up a monument in his own honour. Samuel, he must have been getting more and more angry at Saul's blindness at this stage. And finally, when he reaches Saul at Gilgal, Saul cheerfully greets him and he says in verse 13, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But do you remember what God said to Samuel in verse 11? You can see them side by side in the next slide, I think. God said, Saul has not carried out my instructions. Saul is rewriting history here. Saul was supposed to listen to the, the sound of the word of the Lord. That's literally what it says in verse 1. Saul was to listen to the sound of the word of the Lord, which was to destroy everything. And he thinks he's done that. And so Samuel says in verse 14, what then is this sound of sheep? Literally, it's the sound of sheep and the sound of cattle. Surely it should be obvious to Saul that he hasn't listened to the sound of the word of the Lord. Because the sound of sheep and cattle make it pretty obvious to everyone else. How could Saul be so blind? Well, the answer is, and this is our second point, sin is deceitful. Sin blinds us to the truth. And of course, it's not just Saul that suffers from this. I fairly frequently wonder how other people can be so blind to their sin. But you know what I hardly ever wonder? I hardly ever wonder how I can be so blind to my sin. Why is that? Well, it's because sin is deceitful for me too. Sin blinds us all. Other people are clearly selfish, clearly arrogant, clearly rude, clearly inappropriate, lazy, greedy. And I know that these things are theoretically possible for me too. But why is it that I actually struggle to pinpoint them within myself? It's because sin is deceitful for me too. Sin blinds all of us. Like husbands, we know that we're supposed to love our wives. But sin hides it from us when we're failing at that. We know we're supposed to lay down our lives to, to die to ourselves, but we excuse our selfishness, our laziness, our rudeness, our stubbornness, our inaction. We excuse it all the time. That's if we even see it. How can we be so blind? Sin is deceitful. Or like we know we're supposed to flee sexual immorality, but sin hides from us when we're failing at that. We reinterpret what immorality actually is. We justify it. We refuse to acknowledge it. Or we reinterpret what fleeing actually is so that we actually end up flirting with sexual immorality instead. I keep hearing stories over the years of, of people who go on holidays together, Christians who go on holidays together before they're married, just the two of them. Sin deceives us to think that that's okay, that that's somehow still fleeing sexual immorality. How can we be so blind? Sin is deceitful. Or, like we know, greed is idolatry. We know that we're unbelievably rich in this country compared to the rest of this world. 
We don't ever really worry about where our next meal is coming from. We, of all people, should realize that we're incredibly prone to greed. And yet, chances are, we're deceived by our greed. So that unless we're swimming in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, we can't even see it in ourselves. We fail to see our own love of money, our own dependence and trust in money, our own service of money. How can we be so blind? Sin is deceitful. It's not just Saul who's blinded by sin. It's all of us. Saul can't or he he won't see the truth. And instead, he does what we all do too. Saul tries to rewrite what happened. And he does this in three different ways. Look at verse 15. Saul says, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Now, do you see the self-deception that sin is causing here? First of all, Saul shifts the blame onto other people. If you go to the next slide, you can see this. Who's responsible for what happened? Not Saul, the soldiers. Now, blame shifting, it's got a really fine heritage that goes all the way back to the beginning where Adam blamed Eve for his sin. And we're no different, of course. Almost every time we think about, every time we sin, don't we allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking that others are the cause? You know, I totally believe that I would be an awesome parent if I didn't have any kids. (laughs) If there's a problem with my parenting, it's nine-tenths their problem. They're unreasonable. They're ratty. They're stubborn. They just put on a good front here. And I've got no idea where they got it from, although I've got my suspicions. School, the internet, or Kathy, it's got to be one of those three. But on a more serious note, how many times, if you're a parent, do you blame your kids for your own sin? Or why do I dislike that person at church? Why do I feel like it's reasonable that I'm offended by them and that it's right that I avoid them? It's because the problem is with them, not with me. Why is this fight happening with my husband or wife? It's them. Why is there this problem at work with my boss or with my colleague? It's their problem. Why is there this tension with my parents or my in-laws? It's because they're infuriating and inflexible and stubborn. And hopefully they're not listening to the podcast of this sermon. Sometimes in churches... People complain a lot. Now, I've got to say, that's not ever been my experience of of you guys at all. But I, I remember an older minister told me this, talking about receiving complaints. And he said that even in the most unfair kind of complaint or criticism, he said that the best thing that you can do is look for that kernel of truth that is in there somewhere, rather than automatically blaming the person who's complaining or criticizing you. This minister, he said that you can rob the devil of what he's trying to do by finding that kernel of truth that's there in that complaint. It's almost always there. Instead of trying to rewrite history by blame shifting, if we expect sin to be deceitful, then we'll be expecting that we're probably more to blame in most situations than we realize. We'll have a look up on the screen at the next thing Saul does. He says... 
They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Do you see that? He spiritualizes what he's done. He did what he did for God. Now we can do this too. We buy that huge house that's beyond our budget so that we've got to overwork and neglect our family and we can't be generous to others. But what do we say? It's so that we can be hospitable and have more people around. And isn't that what you want, God? We're talking to someone about God and it gets to some uncomfortable topic about gender and sexuality. And what do we do? Well, we help God out a little bit with his image by softening, changing things. Because don't you want us to win people over to you, God? Or I skip being with God's people on a Sunday because personally I find it more spiritually revitalizing to be on my own or in nature rather than with God's people. Now once you get going, there's lots of creative ways that you can spiritualize disobedience to Christ. It scared me how easily they came to me. And sometimes though you even see truly horrible versions of this. Like where husbands are told to love their wives by laying down their lives for them but instead they get caught up on the idea that their wives should submit to them. And they push that and even commit spiritual abuse in the name of God. They're told to serve their wives, but they misuse Scripture to serve themselves. That's spiritualizing disobedience, and it's terrible. There are lots of ways to spiritualize disobedience, like being judgmental of others' sins instead of being compassionate like claiming righteous anger instead of seeking peace. None of us are immune to this. The final way that we see Saul trying to rewrite history is he says, but we totally destroyed the rest. Saul minimizes what he's done. He's essentially saying close enough is good enough. God should be happy with partial obedience. Now, we're just like Saul in this way too. So often we think that God should be happy because we've done pretty good. We've got pretty close to what we think he wants. I was only a little bit drunk. And I didn't do anything wrong, so it's not so bad. I was only a little bit angry, and and I I didn't do anything out of control. I was only a little bit harsh, a little bit proud, a little bit self righteous, a little bit judgy. I only gossiped a little bit. Or on the other side, I was mostly hard working, mostly faithful in that ministry, mostly honest. Mostly genuine, mostly peace-loving, mostly forgiving, mostly generous and genuine. But close enough is not good enough. I mean, try saying to your husband or your wife, if you have one, I was mostly faithful. It's just never going to be good enough. Blame-shifting, spiritualizing and minimizing, they go hand-in-hand with sin because sin is deceitful. And what does Samuel think of Saul's excuses? Well, Samuel says in verse 16, enough. He says, stop. Rewriting history is never okay. I mean, how annoying is it when people do it to us? It's, it's worse than annoying. It's offensive. It's relationship destroying. And to do it to God who sees all and knows all, it's not just offensive, it's foolish. Samuel tells Saul to stop listening to his own excuses and to listen to what God thinks of what he's done. And Samuel says that God thinks he's disobeyed. God thinks he's pounced on the plunder. God thinks he's done evil. 
But amazingly, even still Saul is blind to it. And so Samuel says in verse 22, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? See, God doesn't care about religion for religion's sake. He cares about relationship. He cares about obedience that trusts him. And in his eyes, disobedience is just the same in the end as turning to another God. In verse 23, Samuel says, Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. And then Samuel gives Saul God's verdict. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. And now finally at this point, Saul admits it. He admits that he sinned. And he admits why in verse 24. He says, I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. This is so tragic. He should have feared God. But instead, he fears the people that he's supposed to be leading. There's an indirect lesson for any leader here. But especially for the leader of God's people. He should have feared God, not the people. His one role was to obey the word of God and to lead the people to obey God. But he's rejected that role. And so God has rightly rejected him as king. And we see Saul's desperation at this point. But even in his desperation, still sin has blinded him. In verse 30 he says, I've sinned, but please honour me before who? The elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I worship, may worship the Lord your God. See, whose honour does Saul care about? Why does he want to worship Samuel's God? Because Saul wants to look good in the eyes of the people. Sin blinds him to think that what really matters is his people, his kingship, his honour, his opinion of himself, rather than seeing that all that really matters is God. Saul is the king that they want because he gives the people what they want. He's the king who obeys the word of the people. He's the king who looks good in the eyes of the people, but he's not the king they need. Because a king like him will only ever lead the people away from God. And God's people go to really bad places when they follow bad leaders. And so as Saul tears Samuel's robe, as he goes to leave, Samuel tells Saul that God has torn the kingdom from him and given it to another, a better king. And from that day on, Samuel never sees Saul again. It's a tragic story and we feel for Saul because we see so much of ourselves in him, so much of our weakness and our failure. See, the truth is we wouldn't do any better than him. I honestly think I would do much worse than Saul when I read through the account. We too need a leader much better than Saul, much better than ourselves. And this is our final point. We need a leader who will lead us in obedience. In the book of 1 Samuel, the story now turns to a king who will do a better job than Saul. And next week, we'll meet that king. But seeing Saul fail here and reflecting on some of our own failures that we share with Saul, doesn't it make you so thankful that we already have the perfect king? Better than anyone that we'll find in the pages of 1 Samuel? 
Unlike them, we're not waiting for a king who will lead us to obey God. We already have one. We have a king who seeks the Father's glory, not his own. We have a king who doesn't pounce on the plunder, but who empties himself of riches for the sake of others. We have a king who doesn't blame others, but who takes the blame of others onto himself. We have a king who would never minimize sin, who doesn't ever say close enough is good enough. We have a king who takes the full, dreadful judgment of God for sin onto himself in order to save his people from it. Jesus is the king we need. Because unlike anyone else, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. Even to the point of death on a cross. And his obedience means that our obedience is dealt with so that we can stand before God. Holy, pure, righteous, us, sinners. Not because of our obedience, but because of his And Jesus is the king we need because he now leads us in obedience. He leads us to see when we're being deceived by sin. To see when we're blame shifting. To see when we're spiritualizing our sin. To see when we're minimizing it. And he leads us not just to see it, but to turn away from it. Jesus is the king who leads us to live as God's loved children. Giving up disobedience more and more listening to God more and more and living for his honor more and more. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the king that we need. Lord, we thank you that though he was perfect, he always obeyed you. Nonetheless, he died for us to take our punishment for our disobedience onto himself. Lord, we thank you that he is that kind of king. Father, we thank you that he now leads us to trust you, to love you, to live for you. And Lord, we admit to you that we still fail at this. But we thank you that when we fail, you don't see our disobedience. You see Christ and his obedience for all eternity. We thank you that we are now loved children. We ask, Lord, that our hearts would be yours more and more. We thank you so much for Jesus, our King, our Saviour. And we pray only in his name. Amen.